This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. coming to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium. Uh, my name is William Uricchio, uh, and I'm here to introduce John Bell, who's visiting MIT this year as a fellow at the um, Center for Advanced Visual Studies. John is a puppeteer and a theorist and historian of puppeteering and puppets. Um, long association with Bread and Puppet Theater, uh, originally in New York, from New York, but probably before your time, and then up to Vermont. Yep. Uh, organization, if you don't know it, check it out. I mean, it's an organization with a wonderful, a wonderful history. Um, memorable in the in the 2000, I remember the 2000 elections when the uh, the Republican convention, I think. There oh, were, in New York City? Yeah. New York or Philadelphia, New York? Oh, Philadelphia. Oh, Philadelphia. Where yeah. the SWAT yes. teams, the Republicans yes. and SWAT teams, there's something magical about that combination. <laughs> Preemptively swooping in and right. arresting your puppets. They were yes. confiscated, right? Yeah, it wasn't actually Bread and Puppet. It was friends of ours who came out of Bread and Puppet in a complicated way. And, but they were, uh, all the puppets were seized and they were put in trash compactors to prevent the puppet performance <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> yeah. So John has a number of, uh, of books. I'm going to read the titles just in case you're inclined to go on to them. Uh, the author of Strings, Hands, Shadows, A Modern Puppet History, Detroit Institute of Art. He edited Puppet, Masks, and Performing Objects, MIT. And um, your latest is, was up here uh, and is American Puppet Modernism. American Puppet Modernism with a really, I find it an incredibly intriguing title. <laughs> um, John also works at stores at University of Connecticut where yeah. you're director of the puppet. Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry. Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry. So if you don't see John up here at MIT, you can always pop down to stores. <laughs> right. <laughs> and with it's that. The old insane oh. asylum. <laughs> somehow fitting, but yeah. Terrific. So welcome, John. Thank and, you uh, very much. Thank you so much. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm taking to heart the. Um, the, uh, the the directions that, uh, that I got from uh, Jean saying that uh, it should be a um, sort of a loose presentation. I got all anxious about presenting a paper, you know, in an academic setting, and then I thought, oh, I'll just you know freestyle as it were in a little bit. So I uh, I was talking with William about media studies because um, I come from uh, as as William pointed out from a background in puppetry, and then I studied theater history at Columbia University, and then after that got involved with performance studies a little bit, which was always interesting because performance studies was like, yeah, puppets, okay, fine, whereas theater history was like, puppets, ah, we're not really interested because that's low culture, right? it's not really worth talking about. And um, uh, so uh, performance studies has been an interesting uh, uh, means to, for me to look into the history of puppets and the global history of puppets and larger issues like object theater, which is what I want to talk about today, uh, playing with stuff, the material world and performance. 
And I was thinking that in a way, in terms of media studies, that with puppet theater, it's like ancient media studies, you know, because it's like the pre-modern media, uh, in, in my mind, uh, is, is, um, is puppetry. So in a way, I think I'm trying to think about how uh, puppets as, as object performance, the, the old forms of puppetry, which are really simple and um, straightforward and... and uh, uh, strong in their immediacy, how they connect to to more recent forms of performance, as one might say, using projected images, for example, as we're going to do now. So, um, a, a couple of things I just wanted to, to add to what William was saying. One is that um, I wanted to let you know about the Honk Festival, which is a festival of activist street bands that I'm involved with. There's going to be 25 different bands in Davis Square. October 10th, um, uh, and on uh, 10th and uh, there's a series of symposia at Tufts University on Friday, October 10th, starting at noon and going till six. The Saturday, we're bands are playing all day at Davis Square from 11:30 to nine at night. And Sunday, we're doing a big parade, which which actually I'm organizing, which is in interesting. Um, from Davis Square to Harvard Square. So please come to that, what to those things. The parade starts at noon at Sacco's Bowl Haven in Davis Square and goes down Mass Ave. So check it out. And the students from Cracked, the MIT student art group, will be there. And Derby Dames and veterans, Iraq veterans against the war and um, a lot of different people and 25 brass bands from all over the United States and Rome and Canada. Um, and I'm from a group called Great Small Works. And uh, we do one of the things I want to talk about is um, a production we did in New York City. But Great Small Works does uh, toy theater. We did a toy theater festival in um, Brooklyn in um, May. Toy theater's flat, cut out, tabletop, proscenium arch, uh, theater shows, puppet shows. It's an old uh, 19th century form that we've kind of rejuvenated, and now it's, there's a big movement for doing toy theater. So we're interested in that. And um, so I guess that's, that's all I wanted to say in a preliminary nature. And I wanted to start by uh, showing this, this film that my friend well, actually, Alex Rosenberg from the Center for Advanced Visual Studies, a grad student there, and my friend Jenny Romain put together. And what I wanted to do in this film is to talk about uh, playing with stuff, five implications of the material world in performance. <clears throat> Performing objects are, according to the anthropologist Frank Proshen, Material images of humans, animals, or spirits that are created, displayed, or manipulated in narrative or dramatic performance. In other words, the stuff, junk, puppets, masks, detritus, machines, bones, and molded plastic things which people use to tell stories or represent ideas. In a familiar sense, such objects are puppets and masks of all sizes and forms, from cultures all over the world in different eras, since every society has always had vibrant performing object traditions. But more than puppets and masks, we are thinking of sculptures and paintings used in performance, ritual objects manipulated in religious services, and signifying props essential for the administration of states. 
We are thinking of Plato's third century BCE allegory of the cave, through which, in order to explain the difference between the ideal and the real, he describes a performance combining projected light and the shadows of objects as they are cast on a wall. We are thinking of performing machines, such as those designed by Ibn al-Jazari in 13th century Mesopotamia. We are thinking of the automatons of the 18th and 19th century, and we are thinking of the kinds of things the New York Times blogger Virginia Heffernan was wondering about in her response to the 2007 Super Bowl television ads. She writes, okay, how do I do this? Turn it on, okay, bada boom, bada bing. Okay, she writes, oh, we want the sound off. Oh, okay, I thought you said you But we don't, we, oh, now we're, okay. She writes, it's astounding to me how many car ads have absolutely no people, no passengers, engineers, proud auto workers, drivers in them. Many feature robots or hints of robotry. What's this about? Yes, what is this about? I think it's about the fact that performance with objects has always been an important method of communication in every culture, but one to which we don't always pay attention. I'd like to examine this further in five different ways. First, performing object theater necessitates not only a focal, but also an ontological shift from humans to the world of inanimate objects. Humans are humbled before that world, and this humbling has implications for the ego of the performer, forcing us to consider, even unconsciously, a world in which humans are not of central importance. The unease this kind of thinking invariably brings with it must be part of the reason why we like to imagine object performance as a process of bringing life to the dead objects and why we are proud of our ability to bring life to them. Second, the performing object's constant drift towards the uncanny, towards mysticism, towards the primitivism of the shamanist performance is a reason why in the 20th century West such performance practices had to be tamed first by totalitarian regimes in Europe and then by the development of capitalist mass culture to be separated from their traditional roles in ritual, state performance, and anti-authoritarian resistance in order to be recast as safe entertainment for children, socially productive education methods, and as propaganda techniques for public relations and advertising. A third implication touches on the way that puppet mask and object performance is created the necessity of letting the object determine action. The brilliant television puppeteer Sherry Lewis once said, there's so much bad puppetry around because people simply decide that they're going to do a puppet and then try to force a character onto the puppet. And you can't force it. You have to sit in front of a mirror and let the puppet tell you if it wants to talk. When they explain the basic elements of their work, Lewis and other puppeteers repeatedly describe a process of figuring out what the puppet wants to do. This is not a coy allusion to, the, to a mysterious power of the inanimate object, but a pragmatic challenge the puppeteer meets in order to make the puppets work successfully. It means that the puppeteer is playing with a certain lack of control and experimenting with the different possibilities of the puppet while constantly being aware of how the puppet's structure determines movement. In this process, accidental moves and unforeseen possibilities are key because in those moments, the desires of the object can be discerned. A good puppeteer will seize on those possibilities and incorporate them into her work. 
A fourth implication of object performance counters the popular belief that masks and puppet heads are incapable of sophisticated communication because they lack the ability to change expression. Even a mask or puppet head lacking a moving mouth, eyes, eyebrows, and other features is capable of changing expression if the performer simply shifts the angle of the mask or puppet face and thus changes the image and facial expression offered to the audience. An understanding of these dynamics has long been part of the training regimen of such classical masked forms as Japanese no drama. In the 1890s, the French avant-gardist Alfred Jarry rediscovered such possibilities himself, realizing that, quote, by slow nodding and lateral movements of his head, the actor can displace the shadows over the whole surface of his mask, and experience has shown that the six main positions suffice for every expression. Fifth implication. When we play with objects, we are simply animating the dead things for a little while before they come to rest again, and ultimately before we come to rest and ourselves become dead things too. Humans have traditionally thought that spirits reside within the pieces of the material world, spirits unleashed by the manipulation of those objects, whether accomplished by a moving mask by moving a mask or hand puppet, or by pressing keys on a keyboard to create digital images on a screen. In other words, uh-oh, shoot. That's what I get for improvising. In other words, play with objects has been considered magical, and the players themselves have been seen as shamans because playing with the dead world, we think, must open up communication to that world. Sigmund Freud got to the heart of this from a rationalist point of view when he began to explore the nature of the uncanny by noting the work of Ernst Jentsch, who focused on doubts whether an apparently animate being is really alive, or conversely, whether a lifeless object might not, in fact, be animate, his definition of uncanny. Performing objects are automatically weird. They are uncanny from a rationalist perspective, or they are magical from an irrationalist perspective. In delving into this realm, Sigmund Freud was echoing other 19th century writers, such as Heinrich von Kleist, E.T.A. Hoffman, and Edward Gordon Craig, who all stepped into weird territory when trying to figure out what objects do. So that's the end of that, OK? <laughs> I was trying to um, so I. Uh, Maybe, certainly. Thank you. Cool. Radical. Thank you. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I, that was a little bit fast. We, we made this for a performance we did. We do these performances at Judson Church, our group Great Small Works in New York City. Judson Church has, has been for a long time a center of theater and performance, and we do community theater events called, called Spaghetti Dinner. So we, my, my friend and I made this film so I could um, bullshit about, about academic stuff in a, in a theatrical setting. And there were dance pieces and we did zombie, there was a zombie um, performance and stuff like that uh, as part of that. So if there are any questions right now or comments, please let me know. And, or we can, I can continue with uh, the spectacle and we can, deal with the, your comments later. Maybe that's what we should do. Okay.
All right. So um, the that's actually from the beginning of, of this book, uh, American Puppet Modernism, where I'm trying to figure out, like, coming from the history of puppet theater, which, you know, is, you know, for some people is marionettes and the Muppets and stuff like that, but for others of us is more about objects and machines and, you know, and, and, you know, using machines in performance, like, you know, you all have your laptops there and the way we're, we're, you're using those, the way we're doing this image performance and I don't know exactly how it's working, you know, right? So, or we're trying to mess with the, um, the PowerPoint presentation, et cetera. So, um, <coughs> it seems to me that, and I want to, I try to talk about this, that, that there's a difference between um, uh, acting, I'm looking at this from a theater perspective, that's my background, theater, um, and in acting, you the, the dynamics are, or no, let's think of it as dance, where the dynamic is the body, you know, where you're, you're dancing with your body, your body on stage, or in performance, and then the audience is looking at your body, and you're doing these different gestures, and you're signifying with the, your gestures and your movements in space. Then uh, with theater, traditionally, or drama, especially in Western drama, that's um, uh, been thought of as a situation where the actor is performing a role, you know, um, uh, you know, Hamlet or David Mamet play or whatever, and then you're and you're reciting to be or not to be. That is the question. You're reciting the lines written by Shakespeare years ago, and again the focus is between the audience and the performer. And and Vesvolod uh, Meyerhold, the great Russian director in the 1920s, talks about this, and he says there's a line, a straight line, of um, uh, where that begins with the, uh, the playwright, um, and then uh, there's the, uh, the director, because Meyerholt was very much a director, and then there's the actor, and then there's the audience. So the audience is sort of s is seeing, um, seeing the words of the playwright uh, sort of trans formed by the director and then um, who's advising the actor who delivers them to the audience. So there's that kind of linear relationship. And then um, we were talking early about the dancer and the audience like that. But puppet theater is different because it's really a triad where like, you know, if I'm, I'm performing with this, you know, like, um, uh, Roger Daltrey of The Who, if those of you thinking of rock and roll who did, or what's his name from Aerosmith, uh, Steven Tyler is a big microphone performer. But, um, you know, if we perform with a microphone or, you know, be, or make it talk in object performance, you know, if you give it, if we, <laughs> you give it a goofy voice, Ooh, look at the red light, and, um, uh, right? So um, then, like, I'm focused on this and you're focused on that. So, so in that situation, we have uh, the performer and the, um, the audience not focused on each other, but focused on the object. And that's the principal um, triad there in object theater, which relates to to puppet, traditional puppet theater, your hand puppets and your marionettes and all of that stuff, and also to um, 
Shadow Theater, or like a minute ago, y'all were watching those images that I put together, and and I was talking, and you know, so it wasn't this acting relationship. So we're watching the object, we're paying attention to the object, and now it's Derek Jarman made a great film that just had a blue screen, you know. So this is like Derek Jarman's film without the sound. Yeah. Um, there's the blue screen, you know. We're looking at that, you know, that says RGB two no input. So that principle difference fascinates me, especially today, because I feel like we're using machines all the time, and we're not looking at acting so much. You know, the, the, high, the high point of American live theater was in 1926 or so, when there was like over 300 shows that opened on Broadway. And since then, film and television and radio and the internet have sort of superseded. So despite coming from a theater background, again, theater history background, you know, we don't really watch theater that much, most of us. And a lot of what we do is watch objects in different ways. Um, so uh, with that in mind, and I hope it's not too confusing but, uh, uh, or obfuscating, I wanted to talk about um, this uh, performance we did, just as a concrete example of an object performance. This was in uh, June 1st, 2006 in New York City, and our group Great Small Works um, presented a show uh, a procession, the Rising Tide Parade, which was uh, part of the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's River to River Festival. Usually the River to River Festival has been a parade of artists, individual artists who, who build things and they schlep them around. We said, well, let's do a, a puppet parade, let's do a, a thematic parade, and, and since we, we thought that we could do political theater, we would do that, and we do, would do it about um, three different rivers. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and we were thinking of um, contexts of, uh, that, that were going on in 2006. Um, immigration, because that summer there were big immigration rallies, immigrant rights rallies. Uh, we were thinking of um, Hurricane Katrina, which had happened in 2005, thank you. And uh, we were also thinking of the Tigris-Euphrates River uh, in terms of uh, the war in Iraq and um, how uh, Ibn al-Jazari, who designed the elephant water clock in the 13th century, you know, the, the beginnings of technological performance were in, in Mesopotamia, you know, before that happened in Europe. So we continued with that and we decided to do it about three rivers. Um, the, uh, the heavenly flowing river from the submerged kingdom of the Dragon King from the Qing Dynasty to talk about immigrants because we were working with Chinese immigrants and um, the Mississippi River for Hurricane Katrina and the historical precedent of the 1927 Mississippi flood and the Tigris and Euphrates River. So River to River Festival, okay, we'll do it about rivers. So what we used was um, a variety of different things and being puppeteers coming out of old hippie puppet theater by means of bread and puppet, which, of course, is connected to the old hippie puppet theater done in the 1930s in New York City by people like Jackson Pollock and, um, uh, and other artists. Right? Um, there's that tradition that we don't know about. Uh, we decided to use giant puppets and um, uh, a big uh, uh, riverboat for New Orleans and our version of the elephant water clock 
and then uh, music, a band led by a musician named Kenny Wallison uh, called the, the Himalayas, which will be part of the Honk Festival, and some bicycle instruments made by a collective in Brooklyn, which will also be in the Honk Parade this year. And um, some high-tech uh, 3M reflective material uh, uh, attached to sort of shimmering cutout, plywood cutouts to represent the rivers uh, themselves. And we use those to reflect light kind of the way that Greek theater in the fourth century BC used mirrors to reflect light onto the performances of Greek tragedies. And your uh, regular stil uh, stilt dancing street performance attractions. We started out um, in lower Manhattan at Battery, um, is it Battery Park? And um, uh, we paraded to different locales. So it's a procession, and then a, a scene, and then a procession and a scene. This is the structure of uh, medieval um, uh, cycle dramas that were performed in medieval processions. So like for quite a few centuries in Europe, this was the main form of theater. Even in the beginning of the 1500s, uh, Sh Shakespeare, when he grew up, saw plays that were done in this form. Epic drama done with processions and performances in situ. This, the first scene was um, uh, the heavenly flowing river, and we worked with um, uh, Chinese theater works, a, a Chinese-American company that works with Be Beijing opera performers. And we had a giant puppet designed by Stephen Kaplan, uh, the Dragon King, and uh, uh, we recited a, a poem about loss and distance in Mandarin by the po Ting, Tang Dynasty poet Li Bai, because we're thinking about emigration as loss and distance. And then uh, the Himalayas played a Beijing opera Monkey King melody, and the Top Hat Gang, which is inspired by a popular movie called Kung Fu Hustle, so it's like Chinese modernism and martial arts in an early 1920s thing, they came out, the Top Hat Gang, and uh, doing the electric slide, and they represented the anti-immigrant forces in the, um, uh, in, in, at, at that moment. Oh, here we go. We have to show you a little cheap animation here. And then there's the Top Hat Gang doing, uh, doing the electric slide. And they said, illegal aliens are invading from outer space, taking over our land and our way of life. And then the immigrants emerged from the dragon's body, led by the band. And then we had a fight between um, uh, Kuang Yu Fong, uh, representing the immigrants, she's with the red baseball cap there saying the sleeping giant has awakened and immigrants are not criminals, we work our butts off. And then we lifted some dialogue from Kung Fu Hustle, so be it, let's do it. And then they had this martial arts um, fight and these are all Beijing opera trained performers but not wearing traditional costumes but modern costumes. And then uh, they played the Monkey King theme, and, uh, and uh, what else did we do? Uh, they did martial arts. And at the same time, we had text um, going across the background. Immigration problem, economic refugee problem, illegal employer problem, globalization problem, a series of questions trying to draw attention to the immigrant issue. And then at the end, uh, the immigrant Kuang Yu defeated uh, Yu Hui, um, this woman uh, with her martial arts stick, 
the immigrants chanted another line we stole from the contemporary demonstrations say, that said, today we fight, tomorrow we vote. Then we had a procession and we moved on to the Customs House, which is in Lower Manhattan. Right, This is right near the, the giant statue of the, the, uh, the bull. Have you ever seen that? You know, that's um, down there in uh, Bowling Green. And they were doing uh, construction. And this was about the Mississippi. So there was uh, actually a farmer's market and lunchtime crowds. A great advantage of street theater is that you get an audience that isn't thinking, isn't planning to be there. So you don't have to get them to decide, oh, I want to see a political puppet show about immigration. You know, I will go and pay what, no, they're there, they're on their lunch hour, it's like Wall Street brokers, so you get to talk to them, which is interesting, because with political theater, there's always this problem of, supposed problem of speaking to the converted, and if they see your show, they already agree with you, so why do political theater? It's a big waste of time, some people say, not us. And we did uh, our, schlepped in our, uh, our, our riverboat, and um, then uh, a guy named Haiku, who's a guy from Jersey City we know, a rapper, and a woman named Jennifer Miller. She's with the beard on the right. She's the director of a, uh, a company called Circus Amok, which is the political, does political street circus in New York City. Actually, right now is their season. If you go to New York City, Go see Circus Amok. And they were reciting um, uh, bad um, uh, jokes, and uh, uh, they talked about the historical precedence to the Hurricane Katrina disaster. In 1927, there was a flood in New Orleans. New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans. As the Mississippi rumbled, what happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? Southern hospitality exposed the truth. What is the truth? This is dialogue between Jennifer and Haiku, and Haiku says, blacks were rounded up into work camps held by armed guards and prevented from leaving as the waters rose, which is actually the, the story told in, um, uh, told in a book we used as a reference um, called A Rising Tide. So we were thinking, okay, 1927, uh, 2005, what's the difference? The band played Bye Bye Blackbird, which was in fact the tune that was played um, on a riverboat as the white people left um, New Orleans and left all the blacks behind. They played Bye Bye Blackbird and went up river leaving the blacks behind. So we played that tune and then, uh, then there was a cacophonous roar and um, you see the bicycle instrument there. The, the water rose and uh, then the steamboat blew up and came apart. Uh, and uh, then they, then uh, the, for the next scene, um, Haiku and, um, and Jennifer were sort of middle class black characters, a preacher and the mayor of New Orleans, and um, sort of modeled on the contemporary mayor who ordered, who, who urged African Americans to stay where they were in 2005. And then they interlaced that with jokes by Richard Pryor. Hey, every woman, what is George W.'s position on Roe versus Wade? Jennifer, I don't know what. He doesn't care how the blacks get out of New Orleans. Oh, don't bum. Roe versus Wade. Um, while it's, all this was going on, uh, uh, they're telling the jokes. We were writing on the wall. Um, Jenny and uh, Sam Wilson and myself were writing on the wall. 1927 spurs migration of tens of thousands of blacks from the Mississippi Delta. 1928, 
the mishandling of the crisis affects the presidential election. And now I forget who was running and who was defeated. But um, and then we said, okay, 2005 Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina creates over one million refugees. To mishandling of the crisis affects presidential election. Republicans voted out of office, and then being liberals, we all said, hooray. So then we left, another procession, and we, the band played Bye Bye Blackbird, reassembled the boat, schlepped, processed, went off in parade to the stock exchange. Because we were an official parade, we were able to, to parade into the stock exchange, which has all sorts of anti-terrorist barriers and tons of police. You'll see the SWAT, the SWAT teams guarding the stock exchange. And it was just interesting because um, uh, I think parading is a performance with architecture, especially in the city, because what you're doing is kind of redefining the architecture, right, in terms of urban, hey, urban planning. So we're, we're going down in front of the stock exchange with our riverboat, and people are at lunch, and our elephant water clock, our, our Mesopotamian elephant water clock, and then um, in front of, um, uh, at, at Broad and Wall Streets in front of Federal Hall, uh, the band stood on the steps of Federal Hall, and uh, we set up the elephant water clock and um, did a ceremony. The, an Iranian, a Shiite morning ritual. Shiite, of course, one of the branches of Islam and the branch that predominates in Iran as opposed to Sunni Islam. So we, we're trying to think about Mesopotamia, the Iraq war, and um, a Shiite uh, morning ritual. Uh, excuse me, which is called, I'm sorry, okay. I'll remember in a minute, maybe. Um, uh, Ibn al, no, excuse me, Ahmad Azari, this Iranian artist who's a translator at the UN and <coughs> designed the water clock and added, different from Ibn al-Jazari's original um, uh, design, added six portals to the base of the float from which 30-foot-long maroon streamers could emerge. And um, we set up a circular performance area in front of the stock exchange in Federal Hall and, um, and we said, we said, ladies and gentlemen, science and showmanship, medieval Mesopotamian technology, even Al Jazari's elephant water clock. And the Himalayas played uh, a Sufi trance melody um, from a Moroccan village, Jajuka. So we were, Sufism, of course, is sort of spiritual Islam um, is interesting in terms of poetry. So we played that. And um, uh, the, uh, we rotated the, the, the elephant water clock around in a circle. And that was a very interesting dance, a rotating circle. Um, and the water cutouts were like reflecting the light sort of onto the, the water clock. Then um, Jenny, my colleague, led a call and response version of this um, uh, morning, uh, morning poem. The, um, this Shiite morning ritual we thought was very interesting because we wanted to think about mourning. And of course, 
in lower Manhattan, mourning automatically means 9-11, World Trade Center. Of course, if you're mourning in Manhattan, in lower Manhattan, it's about 9-11. So we thought, okay, people in, people in Iraq are mourning, you know, Americans are mourning about the loss of 9-11. What are the connections there? So we wanted to make those connections with this performance. What is, what is raining, the announcer says, the chorus, blood. The announcer says, who? Chorus, the eyes. The announcer, how? Chorus, day and night. Uh, announcer, why? Chorus, from grief. The announcer, grief for whom? And we left the question hanging, grief for whom? The poem um, is uh, a, a traditional Persian poem from Ashura. That's the morning ritual. Ashura is the morning ritual which uh, it honors the martyrdom of Hussein, who of course is the, the central figure of, of, of Shiite Islam. This, like when you see in photographs of Iraq in, in Shiite homes, on the wall there's a picture of Hussein, right? Because he's the central uh, martyr of Shiite Islam. So anyway, nobody knows this, but that's okay. We, we're, saying, we're, we're reciting the poem about Hussein. Grief for whom? And the, the original poem ends with a line, grief for the king of Karbala, which is about Hussein, but we didn't say that. <coughs> so, and um, <coughs> what was interesting to me was that, among other things, is the way that the red, now I'm, we're thinking of objects here, you know, like the way these red streamers, which streamed out of the, of the elephant water clock, you know, in a way sort of, parallel the red stripes on the giant American flag at the stock exchange, which accidentally kind of reinforced our desire to connect Shiite mourning, Islamic mourning, Iraq mourning, with American mourning. Um, and just as a side note, I think that these Shiite mourning rituals are, in a way are misunderstood because it, people flail themselves and it, like they do in Spain. and. I think it's, it's often seen as a kind of uncivilized holiday because sometimes they even draw blood in these mourning rituals. But it, it's, we were trying to understand that. What, what does mourning do? And how, why might people have a festival of mourning? So um, at that moment, the, the, um, the, the the elephant water clock transformed. I don't think you can see this too well, but um, it transformed uh, by black streamers and confetti coming down from the top of the tower and, uh, and this hijab covering a character's face. Um, whoops. Oh, 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 okay, we're back to the beginning. Um, uh, was removed and... Uh, Jenny came out and recited a poem, another martyr poem from a, a Sufi poet, an Urdu poet. Peep, um, uh, this is not a war, she gestured. This is a manifestation of love. We are trying to understand mourning as a manifestation of love. And then that was it. And then we moved on. And we, we were heading over to uh, South Street Seaport. We did each scene twice. Uh, we went to Louise Nevelson Park, which is, has this beautiful sculpture by Louise Nevelson, a few blocks away, up to City Hall Plaza, and then uh, down to South Street Seaport, and did each of those three scenes again in turn, and the band played this Sun Ra tune. So, um, 
that's basically what we were doing. And uh, <laughs> I'll leave it to you to figure out what it meant. No, I, I'm not, I'm, by that I mean that um, this kind of performance, this kind of theater with objects, right? Uh, is one in which you're presenting the objects, you're presenting the images, you're presenting the sounds and the texts to people, and you're sort of leaving interpretation open. It's, it's not so much like, um, I don't know, heroes, right? Where like there's good people and there's bad people, and you don't, sometimes don't know who they are, but it's really clear what's going on, or Actually, that's not a good example. It's not so clear what's going on. But you know, it's laid out as a television drama in front of you, right? And here there's a lot of, um, oh, God. Um, right, this is uh, my desktop. Um, and here there's a lot of, uh, of ambiguity. Or you know, you're presenting the images. I, I, as I try to, I think, elucidate a little bit in that first film I presented to you. You're presenting the images, and then you don't know what people are going to think. I think any art form is like that. But you're sort of putting it out there and sort of spinning it with the way you combine different elements of performance and trying to tell a story, maybe. right? We were telling stories about immigrants and, and uh, the New Orleans flood, the Mississippi River flood, and this morning ritual was more of a ritual. And then you don't know what happens. But I think to, to, do a, to do a, for example, a morning ritual in Lower Manhattan was actually a very, uh, very uh, positive thing. Um, uh, I think it had a, um, uh, it, it was, Accepted it was it was received well by all the stockbrokers who watched it and the normal people on the streets. So um, I uh, we were happy with that event. That's some of the work I've been doing, and uh, I think I'll stop now. And if Gene uh, was saying that you typically have discussion, so if there are questions or comments, I'd be happy to uh, take them, if we have time. We do have time, time, and we have a microphone, so. Uh, thanks for a really interesting talk. I'm really glad we have this at CMS, because um, I had studied some medieval automata, like the Al Jazari work uh, last year, and I think it's um, opens up a lot of interesting new ways to look at media, seeing puppets and automata as media. Um, I'm wondering, though, you kind of mentioned the, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to take <laughs> um, I apologize for doing that. No, no, it's no problem. Um, but you kind of mentioned uh, early on in the talk how we interface with machines, yeah. but we don't interface with, with people so much anymore. And I'm wondering how you see, how you see new digital technologies, new media, social networking sites, things like that, um, working with, with puppetry and with, with theater. Because what I, what I see going on is that actually it's enhancing it in a way. You know, you see, you see things on YouTube being traded uh, where people are getting off their seats and sharing something. Yeah. But it's a different way of sharing. Well, so. I'm not at all saying it's better to have face-to-face -face confrontation and that media is bad. Because I, I think I agree with you. Like, with, with YouTube, the, you know, the fact that people are like making their own films and putting them, 
putting them online. I mean, that's amazing. I think there's that. I think I think that amounts to real fluorescence of culture. And um, you know, like my son, I, I got this computer from University of Connecticut, and I brought it home, and my son immediately started. He opened up GarageBand and has spent the past four months, you know, like mixing songs, you know. And I think that's a, quite wonderful that that tool is available for audio and video. So uh, I, I, I think it's different. I, I guess that the what I, what I like to argue is that there is a history to this, I guess. Because sometimes I read like the history of television or the history of film, and it tends to start in the end of the 19th century. And the 19th century is full of all these sort of hybrid forms of performance, like the Eidofusikon and panorama performance. I, Henry Jenkins and I had a good discussion about panoramas. I was in Gettysburg last weekend and saw the Gettysburg Cyclorama, which originally was in Boston at the Cyclorama, where the Boston Center for the Arts is. And that was a 19th century performance form uh, that, that was very popular. So there were all these hybrid performance forms in the 19th century. But to my mind, the, the projecting images on a screen, which we're doing right now, you know, well, well, I was mentioning um, you know, the allegory of the cave, or shadow theater, to me, as a puppeteer, is like, an earlier version of this. So, and you know, t presenting you know images with light on a screen is an earlier version of shadow theater. And I guess you know what I'm trying to argue is that these different forms of object and puppet theater uh, are are part of a continuum that now includes electronic media and uh, modern communication forms. And that it's for me, it's interesting to think that. The history of film doesn't start in whenever it is, you know, when Melies or whoever started it, um, but um, uh, but goes way back before. So to make those connections, no, I, 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 no, I completely agree with that. We talk a lot about immersion and interactivity and things like that, but you look at something like the work of Al Jazari, and yeah, and this has been this has been yeah. around for a long time. Well, and also with Al Jazari, it's interesting because like in in the West. Um, mechanisms, especially after the Renaissance, start to be identified with manufacture, right? And then that fits into modern industrial society and, 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 and well, capitalism or socialism. But mechanisms as performance is actually the original way that machine technology was originally used for performance. I mean, also for digging holes and stuff like that. But, but complicated technology, like even Al Jazari used, it wasn't that in that society in Mesopotamia, they weren't thinking about manufacturing products as they began to be in the, what, the 17th, 18th century, but performance. So the history of machines and performance is also really rich and strong and, and something I'm really interested in. Because like, you know, we're all performing with machines. You know, I'm doing my PowerPoint presentation. Jean said, we really like PowerPoint presentations. Everybody here knows how to do a, a PowerPoint presentation in a way, which is the performance, you know. Just as in the 19th century, people performed a solo narrator and big images. You know, here's the Mississippi River. Here's the. You go to the Whaling Museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. There's the Whaling Panorama. There's a narrator standing there, a series of images, and this is how whaling happens. But instead of projected on a screen, about the same dimensions as this, it was paintings on a on a on a big scroll that wound. So like I'm saying, I'm thinking, oh, you know. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, uh, the, uh, 
the uh, inconvenient truth, you know, is actually the predecessor of that is the whaling panorama, right? Okay. So let me just ask a follow-up question um, because I noticed, you know, in the film talk part you opened with, um, Leger's Ballet Mechanique was a, was a recurrent set of imagery. And that's what, 21, I think 1921? Something and, like that. And if I look at the sort of history of pageants, which you reminded us of at the end with this, yeah. this performance on, in, the, in downtown New York, um, pageants were really big more or less everywhere and especially, you know, not in, including the U.S., until I'd say like the 20s, early 30s, and they kind of peter out. Performances that would have objects like you had the, 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 um, the fountain and the elephant and all that stuff. I mean, this would, they would be patriotically themed. Their, their meetings would be inscribed with whatever they were celebrating. Right. But it was objects. It was people. It was stopping and doing performances. And that sort of stops when film is, is really starting to become both more immersive, but also more sort of its direction starts to move off in things like ballet mechanique, where objects take on lives of their own. Right. So do you, what's the, do you see a relationship there? I mean, this. Yeah, well, I, um, yeah. The, you know, because I just asked, because in the world of theater history, there's often a correlation made between the demise of the stage and right. the rise of the screen. And it's a yeah. false, to, to my mind, a false correlation. So I'm not asking this right. to prove a correlation so much as to right. see how you see it. Well, with Ballet Mécanique, I mean, that was, well, Fernand Léger, I mean, it's a hybrid, because Fernand Léger and Dudley Murphy, the American, they made it together with supposedly Ezra Pound and all these interesting people. Um, uh, they made this film with objects, which is what I liked about it, but it was talking about machines. They loved the idea of machines. It was sort of a post-futurist idea, that, I mean, typical of the European avant-garde. But Léger was also designing giant puppets for the Ballet Suédois, for like La Création du Monde, which was this um, big ballet piece with giant puppets and masks. So he was doing both. And um, the, the film with the cannon, with um, Eric Satie jumping up and down with a bowler hat on the roof of the um, Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, that's with this Spanish surrealist whose name I forget. Pizarro. I think it's Pizarro, isn't it? I don't know. Forget. I forget. I wanted to remember that, and I didn't. But um, uh, that was shown, on track was shown together or, or, um, with, uh, as, as part of a Ballet Suédois live production in the Tête de Champs-Élysées, um, Relâche, very famous uh, spectacle performance, also in the 1920s. And the film was shown in the middle of the live performance, so as a sort of, as an entract between scenes. So there was this combination of live performance, which was with objects and masks and stuff like that, and dancers, with the film. So I, I'm not, I guess I'm fascinated by why, with what you're saying about the relationship, because I'm thinking, well, did pageants really end, you know, in the 19, whenever, the 30s, you know? Because, or did they just shift into a different form of culture? Mm -hmm. You know, the, I, I, it's, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I was, I've been interested in trying to think about that. Um, in my book, I talk about 1930s political um, pageants in New York City, like I mentioned earlier, um, that uh, Jackson Pollock was involved with, and you know, thinking, oh, there's a tradition here. So I'm. I'm thinking that they probably coexist and, and uh, well, not I mean, they, they, supersede the other. Right, they do coexist, and as far as I know, but uh, it's your area, not mine, um, it's about a 
marginalization in a certain sense. It is left-wing political um, actions that it will deploy these. The circus will sort of sustain this in lots of ways. I mean, there are sort of fringe spaces, fringe spaces, sort of focus spaces where these occur. But where they stop occurring is on Main Street. Well, um, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade yeah, is right. actually pretty you know, consistent annually. And that yeah, was right. the, the, the inflatables were invented by a guy named Tony Sark, who was like this revered puppeteer. Um, in the United States, and that that spectacle, which of course is a you know it's a capitalist spectacle, which is this odd amalgamation of a holiday, you know Thanksgiving and Christmas. It brings Santa Claus. It's this weird Christian thing ritual going on with the giant with the inflatables. New technology inspired by. Goodyear, who was making dirigibles for the army, right? That's where the technology is from, from Goodyear. So it's, it's, it's taking off of military technology. That was going on. So I guess I'm thinking that there's this rich mixture all the time. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Oh, I wanted to say some of the other films were uh, we mentioned Ballet Mécanique and um, uh, On Tract. Um, Alexander Calder, Calder Circus. Um, a Czech filmmaker named Jan Schwankmeyer, who does a lot of animation. That was the heads that were transforming and spitting out. Um, uh, René Claire made On Tract, I think. And um, uh, a performance artist in New York named Stuart Sherman, who performed on we did that thing with the table and the Mickey Mouse ears and these objects. Um, wonderful, wonderful performer who was active in the, in the 70s, around the time of the Ridiculous Theater and Robert Wilson, sort of New York minimalism. So that's, I don't know. Yes? Just a quick side question. Um, my friend Morgan was also doing puppetry at the 2000 RNC. Uh, Morgan Fitzpatrick? Yeah. yeah. Um, if you're at liberty to say, can you actually explain what did happen in 2000 at the RNC if it's not legally? It, it, the, yeah, that was the beginning of what was called the, the puppetista movement, which was sort of a radical, like leftist puppeteers. So, so, like, and for us, these are hippie puppeteers who had started doing anti-war, who were, were joined in with anti-war puppet stuff in the 60s. Which is what Chris Marker's film talks about. Chris Marker's La Cisienne Place du Pentagon has this very nice imagery of bread and puppet at the at the Washington Monument doing shows. So the puppetistas in 19, in 2000, um, it was uh, new, younger folks from my user perspective who went, uh, who had, who had, a lot of whom had taken part in stuff in Seattle, the anti-WTO demonstration in Seattle, which is also like a giant puppet. I think today is the anniversary of the Seattle demonstrations. And they came to Philadelphia to do, um, to make puppets. They had a big open workshop. An artist um, uh, offered his loft. And they had open workshops. And the idea was to, um, uh, to, to articulate the points of view of these folks who were protesting the Republican convention and the Republican priorities by using masks and puppets and banners, flags, all of that stuff. 
because as one of the organizers said to me, one of the workshop leaders, you know, people say, well, what are you, what are you protesting? What's, what do you want? You know, what's, what's your program? You know, you're against something, what are you for? And the way we show what we're for is with these big images on the street. So, so they, um, they had this workshop, it was like open, everybody come, whoever wants to come, come and help, and puppeteers from all over the place came, and a lot of them were like, like Morgan Fitzpatrick, who, Andrews, who lives in Philly now, and a, a guy, um, Maddie Boy, who had a theater called Spiral Cube Puppet Theater, which he started out as an ACT-UP activist, all sorts of people came, and they built out of paper mache and cardboard all these puppets. Um, the best practitioner of this form of sort of puppets for the people accessibility is Sarah Peavy, who runs the Puppeteers Cooperative in the basement of Emanuel Church and is a little little known in Boston, but in fact a brilliant designer of, of puppets. They did this, and then the police, what's interesting to me is that this was so threatening that, the, that these, you know, hippie, no, not hippies, but these young artists, activists making puppets, that was so threatening that the Philadelphia Police Department had undercover agents come in and infiltrate the open puppet workshops, and, um, According to um, my friend Jason, they would uh, they would bring you know beer and stuff and ingratiate themselves, and then and uh, then they would say, Hey, come on, we're gonna, we're gonna go spray, we're gonna spray graffiti on their wall. Come on, come on. So they were agent provocateur, you know. Let's go smash this one sometime, you know. Spraying a the anarchist sign and stuff. So they infiltrated by the police. And then um, before they could actually do their demonstrations, the, they, the one day, like, I don't know how many, hundreds of police surrounded this warehouse. There were helicopters flying overhead. There was a siege. They, and finally, the, puppete the uh, puppeteers all surrendered. They were put in buses and, and kept in buses for a couple of days, like for three days. This is like the pattern that was that was reiterated in, in the, the New York um, RNC later on, and I think also now recently in Minneapolis, St. Paul. You know, without being charged, and then the puppets, as I said earlier, were all put in a trash compactor and destroyed. That's true. Right. And and uh, so, which makes me think, you know, here's this ridiculous, cheap, silly form of performance with puppets, which is terribly outdated, you know, because it's puppets after all. But for some, why was it that that, form, that was such a threat that it had to be eliminated? You know, like, why was that expression of ideas in the street so threatening that it had to be destroyed by the state, you know? I, and it's very interesting because to me it speaks about the continuing power of this cheap, direct stuff. Because not everybody in the world has access to, of course, computers and giant projections and money, right? So very cheap cardboard garbage. You know what you, what you can do with that. That the fact that that form was so threatening to the state was very interesting to me and speaks to the, the viability of, of these direct forms of performance uh, even you know, the 21st century. So that's roughly what happened. And after that, people started calling themselves puppetistas. And they got all up and got all outraged and indignant and did more puppet shows.
questions or comments? Okay, this is this is kind of okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is kind of a big question, but um, what do you think about puppets in virtual spaces? Because I'm I'm interested in video games, and what do you do in video games? You you control this character, which is not you, but it's some object in a virtual world. Right. So it's it's kind of like a puppetry, and you can like perform for other people and stuff like that. What what do you think about this possibility of? I I, I don't I don't. Do that myself. I think it's terribly interesting. Like um, I, I read a book by um, the English actor who did Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, which was uh, motion capture. With a, I mean, it's different from what you're talking about, but somewhat related. Because I think in a video game, you create a character, and then you move, like you're saying, you move it around, and um, and then it's and it's an image projected on a screen. So, and you're performing with it in an interactive way with like thousands of people around the world, right? Like with World of Warcraft yeah. or something like that. Um, in, in Lord of the Rings, you know, they talked about that as a puppet. You know, they would talk about the digital image of Golem as a puppet. And actually, what's his name, the English guy, worked with a puppeteer. And, and it's very like puppet theater because with, with, uh, um, in, in this way, and my friend Stephen Kaplan wrote an essay called The Puppet Tree about this uh, in this book, Puppets, Masks, and Performing Objects. Bye, see you later. And um, uh, when you're, you know, in, in the traditional form of puppetry, there's this direct connection to the puppet. So like, you know, if you, you know, you, 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 you're, it's directly connected to my hand and I can do whatever I want with it. Then with strings, it's farther away. And with rods, it's farther away. And with what you're talking about, <coughs> there I don't know if it's live action. I think it's probably live. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it, it, the distance is um, you know, mediated electronically. So instead of going like you're going and this, but achieving a similar, similar effect. So it's just that modern technology, so the, the picture comes on, you know, because I touch the buttons. So the modern technology lengthens the distance. That's how uh, theoretically we're thinking of it, that it lengthens the distance. It's, the distance is, you know, almost infinite because someone in Singapore, I think, if we're talking about World of Warcraft, can see your character and interact with your character that you're moving in Cambridge, right? So I, I do see it as, a, as related to puppetry in, in all sorts of interesting ways. And I think some of the things I was talking about, you know, where you have to let the puppet decide the action, this weird idea, you have to figure out what the puppet wants to do. I, I bet that pertains to what you're talking about. I don't know if it's a specific video game, but I bet there are certain parameters of the character or like uh, Second Life, you know? Mm -hmm. I think they're parameters that you have to deal with. That, that digital character can't do anything you want. Mm -hmm. It can do certain things really well, like in video, they can jump, and part of the skill of, being the video, of doing a video game well is that you know how to make it jump at the right time, and Mario Brothers, you know, and whatever you do, and you know what I mean? 
you figure out how to make it do what it wants to do already. So I think a lot of the same dynamics are in place there. Um, so, I, so I do think there's a relation. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, hi, John. Hey. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, something that you mentioned during your opening speech about these two perspectives that you can approach to performing with objects. One is irrational, that is like magic, and the other one is the rational. Could, yes. you, could you develop more those two ideas? Um, well, uh, yeah. Um, I was interested in, when I was looking into um, the, uh, looking into this, well, I, I was using the term weird um, because uh, I just wanted to see this the quote from from Jensch, but oh yeah, because um, because Ernst Jensch, Freud drew on Ernst Jensch for talking about uh, the uncanny, and then he sort of took it in his in a different direction. But the way Freud's the way Jensch starts is is as I said. Uh, focusing on doubts whether an apparently animate being is really alive, or conversely, whether a life, lifeless object might not be, in fact, animate. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because the, the origin of this term, the uncanny, is about objects appearing to be alive. You know? So I was thinking that there's something weird about you know, giving life to objects. And like in a, in a traditional or you know, primitive or non-modern society, it's like, the spirit resides in the wood. Like the Iroquois Indians in upstate New York, when they made false face masks, they cut the, they make them from a burl of a living tree. It has to be a living tree. You cut off the burl, this sort of growth, and then you carve that. And that's important because it's living, and the spirit will be in the mask. You know, and likewise in uh, Javanese shadow theater, the spirits of the animals whose skins you're using, they, they think about that, you know. Like my friend John Amy at Brown University, he does topeng performances, and he has to do these rituals. You know, he's this Western professor, but he has to like light the incense and do it right, because it's a ritual performance. So, so in traditional forms, there's this magical quality with these objects, but then, you know, you know, we were talking about the difference between rap modern performance forms and technology. Even in a modern point of view, you know, there's something we call it uncanny about these things, about uh, the uh, the nature of these puppets. And any puppeteer will tell you that, um, you know, if you're operating a puppet, there's this weird thing that happens that people watch the puppet, not only kids, but adults. And there's this weird thing going on where you, like ventriloquism is a good example. That's playing with the fact that you're totally believing it's a, you know, you're, you don't believe and yet you believe, you know, that that's really an, a human being. You know the guy has his arm off the ventriloquist dummy and he's, he's saying or she's saying those things with not moving their mouth. But you're drawn in and it's like, oh wow, it's really a, a being. So any way you look at it, either from a traditional sort of magical realm, which you know the Enlightenment is sort of suppressing, because the Enlightenment in the West is like saying rationalism is key. Irrationalism, we don't need that anymore. You know, we're we're going on to better things. Even from a rationalist perspective, it's still weird what's going on. You know, it's still weird. 
like the image just left, you know, why did that happen? You know, that's sort of interesting. Well, it timed out, but still it's a little bit odd. It's a little uncanny. And I think we all feel that, you know, if you go to Disney World and look, you know, people are still struck by that. Adults as well as children. If I answer your question. Yeah. Somewhat. So maybe an off, slightly off-topic question, but it goes to your, the, your framing of your talk. And you said, oh, that you work in performance studies and in theater studies, and the theater guys sort of don't really deal with puppets because they're too low culture. Yeah. Um, but the performance people, of course, do because they're, perf they're performative objects. Their performance is a big word. So how does a film like Being John Malkovich fit in those two communities? One of the, you might have a lot of ways to read the film, and one might be to say that actors are marionettes. I mean, they're sort of at yeah. the behest of a director and the cutting room floor, et cetera. And in other ways, to sort of celebrate the actor and agency. So right. does that get read differently between those two communities? Yeah. Or? Well, I'm very prejudiced about film and puppets. Like, most puppeteers are like really weird people. And I guess I'm one of them. But um, with all their prejudices, you know, it's like baseball fans or something. Or Red Sox fans or the Yankees fans or something. Or but um, so um, for me, um, for me, that's an interesting film. Charlie Kaufman wrote it and Spike Jones directed it. And for me, it's about the metaphor of puppetry. And as a puppeteer, it's like, oh, that's not really apt. Because in the, the dramaturgy of the film, the John Cusack character is a frustrated puppeteer, which that's perfectly realistic, you know, who's not successful uh, and um, selling his art. And then uh, it seems like the dynamic is, or his you know, objective in the play in the story is to control people. He want, the reason why he, want, he likes to get into John Malkovich's head is because then he can control him. He can control Malkovich. And the, the, the conceit, the metaphor is that puppets are all about control, total control. And we know, and I was trying to say that quoting Sherry Lewis, that actually that's not it at all. You know, that's not it at all, because it's about, you know, lack of control. You know, it's like, you know, can I balance this? You know, and you know, I don't have complete control over that, right? So, so it's playing with that, and that's what makes it interesting, or dealing with the dynamics of your digital character and not knowing what's going to happen if you do this, that, or the other, but then responding, and, and um, it's like tightrope walking, too. You know, Philippe Petit on the World Trade Center, you know, what's going to happen? Um, He's, he has to deal with that long bar and the wind, and it's, he has to respond. So um, uh, the, the, the idea, the conceit that puppetry is about total control strikes me as like, oh, OK, it's a nice film. I like Catherine Keener, and it's, but it's really not about puppetry. You know, it's like when you see, if you're a musician, you ever see like, an, uh, uh, an ad for a fashion, you know, for a fat Louis Vuitton or something, and there's like a model holding a guitar, and then you look at the fingers, and nah, this, they're not really doing a chord, they're not really playing it, or they're holding a, the, the saxophone all wrong, and it's like, okay, we're, we're not really talking about music here, we're talking about something else, you know, it's, and that's the way I think about that film. It's, it's interesting, the, um, <laughs> I shouldn't talk about it because I, I, I have a 
my wife refused to go to the Lion King with me because I would complain all the time. But Julie Taymor made a film <laughs> called Across the Universe with these Fred and Puppet puppets in it. And she's a puppeteer, and she studied with Fred and Puppet before she went to Indonesia, and then was exposed to Indonesian culture, which is like the, like the, like heavy puppet culture, like the deep, deep puppetry culture in Indonesia. And Taymor understood that and came back, and I think that helped her give the confidence to, to convince Michael Eisner to do The Lion King with puppets, because she knew it was possible, and had seen other stuff. But, um, you know, there there's puppets in the film, they're not, they're, and they're a lot, they're sort of, they're copies of bread and puppet puppets, but like almost exact copies, but someone else made them, and it's, it's sort of a bad issue because it's like you didn't really have permission and anyway but the, the problem is that that for instance she uses a um, a giant puppet that we used to use in these big domestic domestic resurrection circuses this giant puppet with a 18 foot 20 foot tall head and a 20 foot body and big hand and we used to schlep it around on this field and it would take 50 people to operate it. And the whole thing is about scale. Um, uh, the whole thing is about scale and proportion and the dynamics of the stage picture, right? And, and in her movie, she puts the two lovers the, the, right in front of it, you know, like there's this giant, and then they're there and they're embracing it. It's a nice, there's a, a, a publicity shot and they're looking, you know, like in all of the, they've just taken LSD or something. And the proportions are wrong because it was never the way we use the puppets. It was never about the creation of a background for the actors, but a belief that the puppets themselves could tell the story. And so I think that's the big difference, the, um, you know, having a belief in the puppet and understanding what they can do. So I'm sorry, I just, I just go on and on about these, these questions you raised. Other questions? To me. There was a brilliant thing that the MIT students did in the last year's honk parade, because the, 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 uh, the, this group Kraft, which has an exhibition opening now in the Student Union, right? Student Art Gallery. Student Art Gallery. Next Thursday. Next Thursday. And they, the theme of the parade is reclaim the streets for horns, bikes, and feet. So we wanted to be political, but we didn't want to have a specific political issue. So it's about transportation and alternative transportation, sort of. And they made this giant dustpan out of cardboard on wheels. And so their idea of reclaiming the streets was to have this giant dustpan move down this Mass Ave last year. And it was really brilliant. And then they had like. Uh, plastic bags, you know, like in American Beauty, isn't there a scene with a plastic bag? These plastic bags tied together that sort of flew around, and they were cleaning up the street with this giant dustpan. And it was like a brilliant um, image, and it was immediately clear what they were doing. They're cleaning up the street. It's a big dustpan. It's cleaning up the street. It's great. And but with with belief in the image, you know, which I and an understanding of what the object can do, that was really nice. So so. It, so I, the thing of that is a very interesting um, example of how that could work, coming from people here. So anything else? So I'm just going to end with one real quick last one. And it's um, last time I was in Palermo, I was really struck by the kind of pervasiveness of 
not just Orlando Furioso, but sort of marionettes yes. everywhere. And um, and I got the idea that it wasn't so much the revenge story of Orlando as kind of puppets as a as a metaphor for a lot of the way Sicilian or at least Palermo uh, culture seemed to work. Maybe. Any other places like that that you that I should put on my list of places to visit? Yeah, as, as a metaphor for like the politics or yeah. history? Huh. And interpersonal relationships that people are kind of in the service of others for a particular goal and then it's, you've fulfilled maybe, your obligation. You or mean because of the technique itself? Because someone's operating the puppet? Yeah, that's yeah that sense of yeah, I don't know. Displaced agency or whatever. I, I think like that, that question of agency and control isn't necessary. It's always complicated, of course. Yeah. There's, a, there's a. It isn't always. It isn't always foremost. Right. You know, like like with masks. You know, like a lot. Again, from a theater history perspective, or a theater department perspective, a lot of acting-based teachers say, "Well, the mask masks the ability of the face to." to connect, to, to communicate. The mask prevents the face from communicating, that idea. But in fact, mask wearers, they look upon it like, and I, the way I think of it is, you know, it's like a violin. Like when someone plays a violin, we don't necessarily say, the violin is preventing you from singing. You know, it's, you could be singing, but instead you're using this object here. To, and masks, similarly, you know, the, the function of the mask is not simply to prevent the face from emoting and connecting, you know, but instead to use sculpture in the ways, uh, I quoted Alfred Jarry talking about it, because for him to use the mask in 1896 was like returning to this forgotten popular culture form at that moment in the 19th century Parisian states, right? So he's going back, which is typical of avant-garde. So um, the metaphor is, is not always there. Like with Palermo, which has this giant Sicilian puppet tradition, um, and that, that told the stories of Orlando Furioso, this three, 300 or 400 um, episode epic that was performed all year round, and, uh, um, and uh, also stories about Christian stories, uh, stories of the Bible, and uh, stories of briganti, the, the robbers. Definitely the, the, the stories of the, the brigands, you know, those definitely played out a lot of Sicilian motifs about authority and struggle, and um, what's his name, Eric Hobsbawm, the English historian, talks about that. Uh, he has a book about Briganti, you know, and the importance of that. Um, sort of like the Jamaican robbers or something like that. But um, uh, I guess <laughs> this is a long way of saying I'm not sure. Because um, I feel like that the idea that, that the puppet, the, the technique itself is a metaphor, I don't see that developed as a theme in cultures, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. It's a really fascinating question, and it's probably, and I don't have the answer. So I just should, I should have said, I don't know, but instead I just, like, rambled. Well, John, thanks very much for coming. Thank and you very um, much. And we have a reception at Cynthia Jenkins and Henry Jenkins' house. So um, please join us.